Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. This is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. And I'm Lexi Krupp. Just as we were putting the finishing touches on this episode, a huge storm hit Vermont. It dumped historic amounts of rain, in some areas as much as nine inches, and has led to catastrophic flooding. The center of the village is underwater. At some points, it almost looks like I'm looking across the Mississippi River. Literally need a boat to come rescue them. It's already the worst flooding event since Tropical Storm Irene in 2011. I, I almost can't wrap my head around it. The recovery process will take days, months, or years, depending on the area. And Vermonters are watching the weather forecasts very closely, wary of even more rain. Many people are dealing with the uncertainty of where they will sleep tonight, whether their businesses will survive, or how to find clean drinking water. If you have questions about the flooding and recovery efforts, please visit vermontpublic.org for timely resources and information. The storm is part of a concerning trend, as climate change is bringing more extreme rainfall to the state. But understanding why this flooding emergency has been so destructive is not as simple as looking at the sheer amount of rain we got in recent days and weeks. Another piece to the puzzle is the focus of our story today. A story, by the way, that you, Lexi, have been reporting on for months. It started with a listener question voted on by you, the Brave Little State audience, back in early May. And it's about a part of Vermont's landscape that's sometimes overlooked, at least until we experience big storms like the one that hit this week. Our streams and rivers. It's just so much of the storage, the natural watershed and floodplain storage has been diminished because of our encroachments and our our past river management. Mike Klein is a river ecologist and geomorphologist. That means he studies the movement of rivers. He says many streams and rivers in Vermont today are much faster and deeper and more powerful than they used to be. And that means they can be much more destructive. But when that water recedes and you see the roads washed out, that won't be from inundation. All the roads in Middlesex that I can't drive home on, (laughs) that's erosion. When I spoke to Mike a few days ago, he still wasn't able to reach his home in Middlesex because of the flooding. He was staying with friends in the Burlington area. This is the second time I've been a flood refugee in Vermont. <laughs> in, my, in my profession, it is kind of ironic. Mike's house was also inaccessible during Tropical Storm Irene in 2011. But he says Vermont's rivers haven't always been this powerful. As it turns out, we made them this way. This is a story about the way our rivers used to be, which did not look like the perfect babbling brooks you might find in a nature calendar. I think a lot of them are just not even remotely (laughs) what we have in mind as a stream. And also how and why we changed them. There was a mentality 150 years ago that you had an obligation as a citizen to straighten your stream. This history helps explain some of the devastation caused by the flooding emergency in Vermont as we release this story. And efforts to bring our streams closer to a natural state are part of the key to resiliency, 
after a heavy rain, this dam, it's slowing the flow of water. It's capturing a lot of water, a lot of sediment that otherwise would just go downstream. Brave Little State is a proud member of the NPR Network. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Our question asker, Gus Goodwin, is an ecologist and conservation planner for the Nature Conservancy. My training is and comfort zone is plants and rocks. You know, that's really my sweet spot. So not streams, but he worked on several restoration projects involving streams and rivers in recent years. It's just kind of blown my mind. And what's been so surprising to him is just how much our streams have changed. As an ecologist, I can't believe how long it took me to understand how far our streams have been pushed away from what they looked like so long ago. I should know better. So he wrote in to Brave Little State. What does an old stream look like? Does Vermont have any? And can we manage for them? I want you to close your eyes and go back in time. Imagine it's 500 years ago, in this place we now call Vermont. You're walking on a hillside, where the forest extends in every direction. Some of the trees around you are huge. There's beaches you can wrap your arms around, plus maples, yellow birch, and hemlock, young and old. Overhead, there's a gap in the canopy, where sunlight streams through. And there's downed trees everywhere. In some places, it's hard to navigate. You have to duck and scramble to get around. And when it rains, the water doesn't go straight into the stream. It moves through the forest canopy slowly as it drips down through the foliage. When it reaches the forest floor, there's a lot more complexity, the woody debris, the plant community. In lots of places, the forest floor is soft and covered in mounds of moss. You keep going, and eventually you hear running water, but it's hard to find the edges of a single stream. You see a river that is really multiple rivers. Instead of the single thread that we're all so accustomed to, we have rivers that are are multiple channels. There's really no one dominant channel. And there's just stuff everywhere. And the main thing that you notice is just the large woody debris. You know, the number of big old trees lying in all different manner, like in the channel, across the channel, suspended above the channel. Branches, boulders, and stumps all piled up, and tons of trapped leaves that provide food and hiding places for all sorts of creatures. In some places, these log jams are massive. Some of the debris could have been stuck there for years. And this stuff in the stream bed, it changes how the water moves. There's places where the channel is fast and deep, slow and shallow, and every combination in between. You might be like on a shallow gravel bar and like the next step in a, you know, 
five foot deep pool. There's deep pools, there's shallow components. There's a bunch of different patches of fine sand, patches of bigger gravel. And really, it just looks like a mess. A big, glorious mess. Before we get any further, a quick semantic clarification. When we think about streams versus rivers, there's no bright line in the sand. That's according to some of the scientists I spoke to. Generally, we think of a stream as small and a river as big, but the terms are often interchangeable. Really, streams are all part of a larger river system, and that refers not just to the water flowing through a channel. It's also the banks and surrounding land where the water can spill out during a big rainstorm. And whether you want to call it a river or a stream, a brook or a creek, there's a common history that played out here. It's a story that we mostly know about our forests. A lot of people do that the European settlers and colonists arrived. We cleared off the forest. We sheeped the state hard and then we abandoned it and the forests have grown back to some extent. And a similar story must have played out for our streams, but I, I think it was much more severe. Many early European settlers wrote about how hard it was to follow or even find the river channel when going up or downstream. One researcher I got in touch with remembers reading some of these accounts, like a quote from a settler in Georgia that went something like, I've never seen a river so infested with wood. So the settlers did what they were prone to do, tried extremely hard to bend the world to their will. Consequences be damned. And so on top of deforesting the landscape, they also removed all the piles of wood and boulders from rivers and streams. The two activities were inextricably linked because of how they moved timber. You can't put a log down a messy stream. You know, if a natural stream that has lots of wood in it, uh, lots of bends and big boulders from glaciers, they, they, all the logs will get hung up. Mike Klein again, the river ecologist from Middlesex. He says that beginning in the 1700s, crews of men and horses worked like crazy from April to November to pick out wood and boulders from our streams and to straighten the streams themselves. And they would crowbar out any obstruction in the stream. And if they couldn't move it by hand... They would drill and dynamite it. Yeah, European settlers came to this region and started blowing up rivers. And this wasn't just on big rivers. Even smaller streams on hillsides were cleared to move wood. Meanwhile, as settlers cut down the surrounding trees and vegetation, it caused a ton of erosion. Our rivers were literally buried in sediment that wasted from the mountains, mountains and hillsides. You know, most of our, our state was, you know, glacial lakes. And so all that sediment that was impounded in those glacial lakes was now coming down off the hillsides into the valleys and smothering our streams and rivers. That dirt from the 17 and 1800s is still here. Mike has seen it. We were measuring anywhere from a couple feet to a couple meters of, of sediment. I mean, there are literally rivers today that are still adjusting from that time. And even as our state's land use practices changed and the forests started to regrow, this European settler mentality about our rivers and streams remained. For decades, it was seen as a civic duty to keep your stream neat and straight. 
there's laws, a Vermont law that says if you didn't straighten your stream and properly drain your land, your neighbor could go to the select board and get permission to come on your land and do it for you. There was a mentality 150 years ago that you had an obligation as a citizen to straighten your stream. But here's the problem. Taking down trees out and straightening a stream makes it more powerful. It's sort of like a trail on a mountain that doesn't have any switchbacks. It's more steep, so the water flows faster. The stream will start cutting down into the bedrock, so it gets deeper. Then water can't spill out along the stream channel, where it has a chance to soak into the ground. That's until there's a really big storm. Rudy Rudell remembers seeing this in action at a stream in Bethel after Tropical Storm Irene. I was walking down the stream, and the stream kind of disappeared, but I could hear it still. And I suddenly realized that what had happened in Irene was this log jam had formed, and the stream had risen five feet in a single storm and was back up at a level where it was reaccessing the historic floodplains that it had. Rudy is a scientist with the nonprofit White River Partnership. He says that Irene was sort of a wake-up call, and it led to a big policy shift in how we think about river management. That means everything from building bigger culverts to protecting land along streams and rivers that can act as floodplains. So while the ongoing flood emergency has caused incredible damage, Rudy says, at least in some places, it could have been even worse. It hurts when, when we get slammed. But in reality, we're slowly making progress, and it's happening on a lot of different fronts. Sizing culverts properly has spared us a lot of damage this round. Gus Goodwin, today's winning question asker, lives in East Montpelier, one of the hardest hit areas of Vermont in the ongoing flood emergency. Shortly before publishing, we reached out. He wrote back saying he's safe, but right now his question feels more urgent than curious. And that as Vermont builds back from this disaster, he wants us to remember the undeniable link between the health of the natural world and the well-being of our human communities. Gus's original question wasn't just about how our streams have changed, though. He also wanted to know if any Vermont streams exist today in their old, messy form. And if we still have any old streams, where are they? Boy, did I spend a lot of time (laughs) looking. It was like the needle in the haystack. Shane Jaquith is a river scientist at the Nature Conservancy, but for years he was working for the state with Mike Klein, specifically trying to find undisturbed streams in Vermont. Looking back on it, he says the places to find old streams are in old forests, like in the Gifford Woods in Killington, sections of the Green Mountain National Forest, the headwaters of the Clyde River in Island Pond, and the Sleepers River in Danville. Anywhere you might find big trees in the water. But those spots are few and far between. I can tell you that I don't often come across streams with a, with a lot of large wood structure in them. It's more of like a feeling than an actual condition, you know? 
Gretchen Alexander is a river ecologist and artist who lives in Jericho and spent over 15 years surveying Vermont streams with the state. Over that time, she says she hasn't seen any rivers that are untouched, but there are patches here and there that seem like old streams. <laughs> like you get the vibe of like, oh yeah, like good stuff's happening here. There is one big exception, though, where the landscape does resemble what it might have looked like a couple hundred years ago. There's, there's also the beaver component. The beaver component. That's after this. In much of this part of the world, for millennia, many streams would have been full of beavers. A lot of beavers. So before Europeans came to the North American continent, we estimate there's about 400 million beaver. So that's a lot of beaver. That turns out to be about 67 beaver per square mile. Ben Dittenbrenner is an ecologist at Northeastern University. He studies how beaver dams can guard stream habitats against climate change. And he loves beavers. Castor Canadensis is our North American hero. Um, and they've been shown to be actively damming streams and changing the environment for about 20 million years. So they basically have evolved with our natural systems. It's important to note that beavers won't build a dam on a stream that isn't flowing year-round, or a channel that's too big or too steep, where the water would blow out a dam. But anywhere else is fair game. So a lot of streams in Vermont would have just looked like a big chain of wetlands. They were sometimes no single, um, like, thing that you could point at as a stream. It was just these dams cascading into another pond and just basically like beaver condominiums um, going on forever. These beaver condos were a boon to other wildlife too, because they're not like human-built dams. They're much leakier. Fish literally squiggle into the dam. It's a nice hiding place. They can rest, uh, but they can actually make it through the dam itself. So it is not an impervious wall. European settlers, of course, did not care much for beavers, except for their fur. And by the mid-1800s, people had trapped out pretty much all the beavers from Vermont. In recent decades, though, beavers have come booming back. They're nowhere near as abundant as they once were. We've built roads, houses, and farms where a lot of old beaver habitat used to be. But at some of the beaver ponds in the state now, you can get a sense of what an old stream used to look like. Like at a wetland in Albany, in the Northeast Kingdom, that was literally buzzing with activity. I went there in June with biologist Tyler Brown. You can hear so many different birds singing. There's a white-throated sparrow that I keep hearing up on the bank. Um, it's one of my favorite birds to listen to. It just has like this very calming, soothing whistle. Right there. Um, there's a bunch of frogs chirping in the back. Um, but yeah, the amount of wildlife that are attracted to beaver-created wetlands is remarkable. Tyler works for the Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife. At wetlands like this, he's seen woodpeckers and wood ducks and bats. Moose will commonly come to these areas. Um, bears will even den in abandoned beaver lodges. Um, so it's got a, like a nice little cavity that they can crawl up into. 
Tyler has spent a lot of time hanging out in beaver ponds because part of his job with the state is trying to keep the peace between beavers and people. In this case, the town of Albany was nervous the beaver dam here could burst and wash out the road. Instead of trapping the beavers out, they called in Tyler to install this thing that lowers the water levels in the pond by about a foot. It's called a beaver baffle. It looks like a cage attached to a big pipe that will sit underwater. There's a bunch of holes drilled in the pipe that's inside the cage. That's where the water, the water will enter. It'll flow through the pipe and then through, through the dam. The state has installed hundreds of these devices in the past 20 years. It's part of a project to try to conserve beaver-created wetlands. And letting beavers just be is not just good for wildlife. It's good for human infrastructure, too. It can reduce erosion because when after a heavy rain, this dam, it's slowing the flow of water. It's capturing a lot of water, a lot of sediment that otherwise would just go downstream. And it's allowing this area to, to absorb a lot of that water. It's getting reabsorbed into the ground. All of this helps streams get back to a more natural, messier state, which is another thing Gus, our question asker, also wanted to know about, how to manage for old streams. So one big way to do it, learn to live with beavers. But not all of our streams today can accommodate beavers. Many don't have the right food growing there anymore, or there's a road or homes in the way with no space for a beaver pond. There is a way, though, for people to sort of act like beavers, to help restore habitat by cutting down trees and putting them in streams. There's a whole state program devoted to this. It's led by Judd Kratzer. He's a fisheries biologist from St. Johnsbury, and he's been doing these wood addition projects at streams throughout the Northeast Kingdom for just over a decade. The program started as a way to improve brook trout habitat in the state, and it's worked. We visited one of these projects at a wildlife management area in the town of Walden in early July. The stream here runs through what used to be farmland. So this is the brook, this is a rock brook. At this low gradient, the wood really holds. It's not too steep. And performs well, yeah. It's like the ideal gradient. Judd and his team will cut trees along the bank and position them to fall in the water, one on top of another, to make a big, messy pile. At this site, it's just two people working with chainsaws. They scope everything out and try to make a picture of what is going to work before we get started. Sam Carter has been working on these wood addition projects in Vermont for 11 years. And it usually starts with identifying our finisher trees, our big trees that will hold everything down together. And then we'll start with oftentimes cutting a path for the first tree to fall in a small, tight canopy like this. And using Seeing all- Sam operate a chainsaw is like watching a master sculptor at work. He usually starts with a tree pole stuck in the water, then adds a bunch of filler trees from either side of the bank, almost weaving them together, and ends with a big tree to anchor the mess down. In this case, a yellow birch. It's just like a big gobstopper in the throat of the stream, and it'll help hold all that brush and that hardwood, hopefully in one unit, and make an artificial wood jam. The goal is that even after a big winter storm, this pile of logs and branches will stay put. It's tedious, time-consuming work. 
The state is never going to be able to do this on a very large scale. But another big piece of this project is just getting across a message to the general public that wood is good for streams. There is another way to manage for old streams that's a lot easier to scale up, that will eventually lead to the same outcome. One of those things is like, oh yeah, planting trees, right? But trees do so many things. This is Rudy Rudell again, the scientist who had an epiphany after seeing a stream in the wake of Tropical Storm Irene. Every year, he and his colleagues, along with school kids and other community groups, plant thousands of trees in Vermont. He says in the short term, those trees cool downstreams by shading them, which is good for fish. And they help improve water quality by filtering runoff. And I, and I feel like that's the thing with trees is like, I don't even understand half the roles that they play on the landscape. But I understand at some gut level that that's something I can give back to this landscape. And then they take it from there. <laughs> He'll have to wait until next year to plant more trees, once the water recedes and floodplains dry out enough. Until then, he's hoping, wherever possible, that not all the wood and sediment recently dumped into our rivers and streams gets cleaned out, that we could learn to live with a little more messiness. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Gus Goodwin for the great and timely question. For resources and reporting about the flooding and recovery efforts, or whatever else is happening in Vermont when you listen to this, go to vermontpublic.org. If you have a question you want Brave Little State to answer, ask it at bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can sign up for the BLS newsletter and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. We're on Instagram and Reddit at bravestatevt. This episode was reported by Lexi Krupp. I edited and produced it with help from May Nagoski. Theme music by Ty Gibbons. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Sophie Stevens, Mark Davis, Bill Keaton, Mary and Greg Russ, Ellen Wall, Will Eldridge, Skip Lyle, and Elizabeth Trail. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public and a proud member of the NPR Network. I'm Josh Crane. Until next time, hang in there. Stay safe and check in on your neighbors. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.